But as we begin this morning, let me ask you to think about your children. And if you don't have children, I want you to think about your mom and dad. One of the interesting things to see in regard to parents and their children is how oftentimes they look alike. Uh, how different physical traits are passed down from our moms and dads down to us, and then to the next generation, and on and on that goes, how those physical traits are passed down. And so, uh, you know, oftentimes I'll look at my five-year-old as she is right now, and I'll see a picture of myself at five, where I I was very skinny, I was very blonde, and very blue-eyed, which is what is sitting over there right now. And it's just remarkable how much we can look alike. Or you might see a picture of your dad when he was around 30. If you're around 30, you say, wow, I I really do have to admit, I look like my dad. That we look alike. That we have their likeness. That we bear their image. But think back to different times. Years ago, 100 years ago, 200, 300, 400 years ago, where parents, where, where children not only looked like their parents, but they also did what their parents did. So nowadays, we're all very sophisticated, and we live in America, and you can just dream big and be whatever you want to be, right? But there was a time where that simply wasn't the case. That if your father was a cobbler, that you were going to be a cobbler. That if your parents were, your dad was a blacksmith, then you were going to be a blacksmith. And you would be taught the ropes of how to cobble or blacksmith, and you would take over the shop when your dad died. And so now there you are, as a 40-year-old man, Bearing the image of your father, working your father's trade, exercising the skill your father taught you in the building that he or his dad or your grandfather established. Now, if you know anything about the passage before us this morning, you can probably get a little bit of a sense of what I'm getting at. That there you are in your father's shop, bearing a striking resemblance to your father. But you are also exercising the learned craft that you learned from your father. You're working. You're providing for your wife. And having children that bear your image. And then you'll teach them to do what your father taught you. And there's really a beautiful pattern to all of this. And I think the core of this sort of pattern can be found for us in the verses before us this morning. Where we see that in our relation to God, that we bear his image. And he's taught us and instructed us to do something to resemble what he has done in creation. And so not only do we bear God's image, but he gives us a mandate. He gives us a command. He gives us something to work toward. Verse 26 really provides the full-on summary for the entirety of what I want to show you this morning. I want you to see three main points that can all be found on the back of your bulletin this morning. First, we're going to be looking at human creation. Second, The image of God, that God gives us His image. We bear His image. And then third, we have the dominion mandate, or it's also been called by others the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. But that'll be third. But look with me beginning in our text at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, And over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So did you notice what God says there right in the beginning? Let us make man in our image. 
I mentioned to you before that it seems like, although there are a few other positions on this point, it seems as though that there are hints of the Trinity within Genesis chapter 1. As the Bible continues, it makes a very clear case for God being one in essence, but distinct in person. So you have the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But Moses here is continuing to use words that open up this idea that God is is, is, is more than one. That there's, a, there's something else here. That this isn't just a simple one, one uh, uh, God in terms of um, you know, persons. But that we're talking about more than one persons. We know from the ex- fuller expression of the Bible that God the Son was involved with creation. When Paul says, all things were created by Him and for Him. In verse 2 of chapter 1 in Genesis, we saw that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in the name of God given in chapter 1, Elohim, it's presented in the plural form. And so we combine all of these things with verse 26, where he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? You add all of this together and you start to get this hint, right? You start to get this sense of who God is. And so our God is a triune God. It's the last half of day six. It's his final day of creation. He's creating in time and space. And so the question before us this morning is what is he going to create on this last half of the day? What is he going to do with his last half of his last day's work, last work day? And he creates man. Now, I don't want you to think that because man was created last, that he was an afterthought. As the, okay, it's the last half of the last day of work. So God thinks to himself, what else could I, you know, what extra icing could I layer on this cake? Like, what kind of pizzazz could I throw onto the earth? No. That in fact, you could argue that this is really all leading up to man being created. That this is not an afterthought at all. The Bible is even clearer that in eternity past, before God said, let there be light, before anything started in terms of creation, God knew how and when and where He would create human beings on the earth. He knew that man would fall into sin. He knew that we would disobey Him. All of that was planned. All of that was known. But ultimately, we know that humans were not an afterthought in creation because of what the Bible says God did in regard to their redemption before the foundation of the world. Before humans were ever created. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now wherever you land on God choosing us and election and that whole conversation, wherever you land on that, you would still have to say, That before the foundations of the world, God had human beings in mind. He knew He was going to create humankind. But even far beyond that, He knew that He was going to create you. Isn't that incredible? No time, no space, no matter, nothing's been created. Genesis 1 hasn't happened before the foundations of the world. God chose And His eternal counsel as the Godhead. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And so we infer then that mankind was not an afterthought. In fact, you can argue that man is really the very point of creation. Man is the pinnacle of creation. This is a very clear instance where God is saving the best for last. 
So now we're going to be dealing with the creation of man further in chapter 2. Because you know that as you move into chapter 2, God says specifically how he made man, right? That he took the dirt and he formed him and then he made a woman out of the rib of the man. And we'll get there when we get to chapter 2. But right here, Moses puts this so that we know what day man and woman were created. But he also mentions a couple of more pieces that are important for us to see this morning. The next one, which is going to spend the bulk of our time on today, and that's the image of God. Look with me again at verse 26 and into verse 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in his in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so again, I asked you to do this a couple weeks ago, but I want you to do it again. To put yourself into the sandals of the original Israelites when they came out of Egypt. You're wandering around the desert. You've been wandering there for a little while, the wilderness with Moses, and he's writing all of this stuff down. He's, he's writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as you're walking around and you're thinking about your past and your life, you can think back to what it was like to live in Egypt. Do you remember what it was like? You can imagine the various tombs and the palaces and the homes and maybe the pyramids that had the image of the Pharaoh on it. Or you can remember what it's like to see images of the Egyptian gods around the town. Images of the sun and the moon gods or the sky god and all of the rest. And you can, you can truly close your eyes as an early Israelite and you can see those gods in your mind. You can see those images on those buildings. Okay? But then you remember what God said in the Ten Commandments in regard to Himself. Thou shalt not make unto me any graven images. You don't do that. What the Egyptians and the other cultures of this day did in regard to fashioning their idols and making their gods, you don't do that. I am not like other gods. You don't make images of me. But then you read Genesis 1 and you connect it with the second commandment and you think, wait a second. We aren't to create images of God in part because we are the ones who have been made in the image of God. Now the next several weeks, I'm going to dive into those very practical current applications of the image of God. That when we properly understand God's image, the image of God on us, our entire worldview begins to take shape the way that it needs to in accordance with the Bible. But I want to draw out a few key points in regard to the image of God that we should understand from this text that will also help us to build somewhat of a definition of what the image of God actually is in the coming weeks. What I want you to think about first is that being created in the image of God means that you are not God. Being created in God's image means that you are not God. You simply bear His image. So like a tiki or an idol is made to reflect and to be an image of that supposed God, so we are an image of the true God. And to worship yourself or act like God is just as much in yourself is idolatry just as much as bowing before a tiki. 
And our tendency is to be just like those who are not in covenant with God. To be our own God is a massive struggle. All of you, whether you realize it or not, you are constantly trying to press your way and to lift yourself up in order to be God. This is a massive struggle for us. That we're constantly wanting to get up from bending the knee to the Lord Jesus. That we want to call the shots, right? That that we want to be autonomous. We truly want to, to, to be a law unto ourselves. In these further applications that we're going to be looking at. That we want to be able to say within our culture. We want to be autonomous. And so that means that I get to decide what gender that I'm going to be. And I get to decide what gender that I'm going to have sex with. Or you consider the people who are even choosing to have assisted suicide. Some, some god or, or fate or whatever isn't going to decide when I die. I'm going to decide when I die. Or those who kill their babies... I'm not going to give up my life for this baby. This baby's going to give up their life for me. That I am the master of my fate. That I am the captain of my soul. The image of God means that you are not God. It means that you are created in His image. And as an image bearer, you are to reflect Him in His character. He is not to reflect your character. As one of the Enlightenment authors of the 18th century, Voltaire, said, If God has made us in His image, we have returned to Him the favor. In that God is going to reflect me. I'm not going to reflect Him. And we set ourselves up as God. That's the first piece. But the second piece is that being made in the image of God also means... That you are distinct from animals. So you are distinct from God. And you are distinct from animals. Now, now this is probably where I'm going to start not making friends with some of you. Because you are not an animal. You are created in the image of God. And so the image of God means... That I am valuable, but I am not as valuable as God, and I am not God. But it also means that I am valuable as a human, that I am not an animal, and I am far more valuable than animals. Again, I would remind you that your ancestors were not monkeys. You are not simply an evolved monkey. You are distinct from a monkey. You may have warm blood, hair, ears, eyes, and a mouth. And so does a monkey. But that doesn't mean that you're a monkey. You are a distinct creature with a distinct honor of being made in the image of God. And that is something that a monkey doesn't have. And when you consider both of these sides, our tendency is to conflate the differences between ourselves and God, right? That we want to be Him, so we conflate that line. But then on the other side with the animals... What does the evolutionary secularist position do? It conflates that as well. They really know there's not much of a difference between you and a monkey. So let me be clear again. You are not God and you are not a mere animal. You have been made in the image of God and as such, you are distinct from both. Now think about the way that God views the animals themselves. That God distinguishes between the different animals, doesn't he? Like even when you, when you read in the passage, on the sixth day, on the first half of it, we saw that God made all of these incredible animals. He calls them living creatures. 
And he separates these living creatures into three different types. Did you see that in the verse? We're in verse 24 and 25 where he says the livestock, the creeping things, and the beasts of the earth. And so there's even a difference between these different kinds of animals, but there's even a difference between the animal and the vegetable, right? So there's all of these living creatures that God has made. They're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're handmade by God, and they're actually even distinct from plants. So there's a difference between the value levels of a buffalo and a cabbage, right? I think we all understand this, right? I hope we understand. I mean, today's world is getting pretty crazy. Uh, There was one actress who said that water has feelings. So there's that. But in verse 11, you see that the plant life comes from the ground. So God doesn't directly create it. He fashioned the earth to produce vegetation in and of ourselves. So in verse 11, he says, let the ground bring forth these things. He doesn't hand do it. He just lets the ground itself do it. And you see a comment like this in verse 24 concerning the animals as well. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. But then he clarifies in verse 25 that the animals didn't grow out of the earth like the vegetables grew out of the earth. And that's because the animals are a much higher life form than vegetation. In that God Himself is the one that created, hand created these animals, and He created them good. And so He didn't just leave the earth to somehow grow them, like He did with the plants. Instead, they're directly created by God's hand. For those of you who were here a couple Friday nights ago, we watched that, that video, The Riot and the Dance. And we, we still have that. We, we bought it. Uh, trying to build up some sort of video library. So you're welcome to borrow that video if you weren't able to come and see that. But the riot and the dance was an incredible display of just having the wonder of God's creation. That, that God hand-fashioned the livestock. He created those animals. He, he, he created all of the creeping things that run close to the ground and, and the beasts of the field. God created all of these incredibly beautiful creatures. And all of their, their colors and, and the scales and the feathers and all of that intricacy. All of those animals having all of that intricacy. Yet they do not bear His image. And they do not bear His likeness. They do not have the value that human beings have. Does not Jesus Himself ascribe more value to humans than animals when He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Look to Jesus, it's very simple. You're more valuable than a bird. Now in today's world, in relation to the animal part of this, there are people who would call Jesus a speciesist because he claims that the human species is superior to the birds. Some of you might be thinking, well, what in the world is a speciesist? I'm glad you asked. So a BBC article said the following. This is a a United Kingdom um, British Broadcasting. They did an article and it said, what is speciesism? Speciesism is the idea that being human is a good enough reason for human animals to have a greater moral rights than non-human animals. You can see the conflation there, right? You're a human animal. Speciesism and bigotry. Speciesism is often condemned as the same sort of bigotry as racism or sexism. People who oppose speciesism say that giving human beings greater rights than non-human animals is as arbitrary as giving white people greater rights than non-white people. So if you're going to be a speciesist 
and say that you as a human are more valuable than the animals, that's really akin to being a racist and saying that because you're white, you're better than a black person. He goes on. Speciesism is common. Most people faced with a difficult choice between a human and an animal would probably react in a speciesist way. And, and then they give an ethical dilemma for us to think about. So those of you in the Christian ethics class, you can, you can think about this ethical dilemma and see how long it would take you to, to, to think through this. The article says, consider this example. A child and a dog are trapped in a fire. You can only save one of them. Which one will you save? Now, I asked Nora this question last night. And I, I said, if we drove by... Yes, you. Yep, I see that hand. <laughs> And I said, if we were driving by the Heises house and there was a big fire and Mr. Chris and BJ were hurt and they were outside and, and when Sage was inside their Weimaraner, their dog is inside and Lucy's inside. So which one should I go in and save? Thankfully, she said Lucy. <laughs> but a hundred times out of a hundred, the answer should be obvious. Even if there's, even if you in your mind you're thinking there's a hundred percent chance that this this child has died in the fire, you don't go for the dog. You go for the child. Now the Bible requires us to treat our animals well. Like let let's be clear on this. The Bible requires that you treat your animal well. It says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Like you do what you can for your ox in order that it can uh, do well and to work for you. But the Proverbs also say in chapter 12 that whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. So a righteous person takes care of their animal. Somebody who is godly will take care of their animals. And so if you choose to have animals, you should take care of them well. All the while remembering that they are not human beings. And they are not made in the image of God. So the image of God shows that we're distinct from God. Although we are made in His image or likeness. But it also shows that we're distinct from animals. But the Bible is also clear that this image of God is not only helpful in how we understand our relationship to God and our relationship to animals. But it's helpful in, in how we understand our relationship to one another. The image of God is the foundational basis for how we view one another. C.S. Lewis has famously said that you have never talked to a mere mortal. And that is true. When you interact with other human beings, you interact with other people made in the image of God. There is not one person in this room who does not bear God's image. Every person who has ever lived has borne the image of God. Again, we are going to explore this in depth over the next few weeks as far as application goes in regard to this image of God and how we relate to one another as a result. That the image of God demands that I value other ethnicities that are not my own. The image of God demands that I value highly the opposite gender. The image of God demands that I value the lives of the unborn. You see, the biblical worldview is the only worldview that is fully inclusive. Because the Christian worldview teaches that all men and women are conceived as image bearers of the God that then fashions them and guides their lives. An evolutionary, secular worldview is exclusive. What is the survival of the fittest if it is not exclusive? This is the very definition of what it is. Secular evolutionary worldviews is exclusive because it says that babies can die. It says that you can put an older person to death. 
It says that a person who is not sentient and that they're not cognizant of what's going on, they can die. It says that if a one or a two-year-old, and there are people, and this is going on right now if you keep track of the news and what the Virginia governor has recently said, but that an infant can be born, be resuscitated, be alive, and then the doctors and the mother can then discuss if they're going to keep the baby. This is the product of an evolutionary secular worldview, which is why it's so important that we as Christians buy wholeheartedly into Genesis chapter 1 and what it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created human beings and he pressed his image onto them. And so therefore, it is the Christian worldview that is not exclusive. It is completely inclusive of all human beings. Ask a charged individual with a secular worldview what foundation they have. If we all evolved out of some primordial soup and we're all just stardust, then where in the world does morality come from? The image of God is the basis for our intrinsic value as image bearers. So friend, if you're questioning whether you have value, that as you get older, you know what, I'm just losing my value, no. Or maybe you're young and you feel like you can't really do much right now with your life. You matter. And you matter because God says you matter. And you matter because God has pressed His image onto every single human being. And it's not because of anything that you have done, but because of what He has conferred onto you. And so therefore, when I look at you, and when you look at all other people, whatever color they are, whatever gender they are, truly, or whatever gender they even claim to be, or their ethnicity, or whatever the situation is, unborn, born, old, young, every single person is made in the image of God. Ravi Zacharias said the following. He said, some of you probably have heard me Mention the simple conversation between Jesus and the one who was questioning him. Trying to pit him, Jesus, against Caesar. And he looked at Jesus and he said, Is it all right to pay taxes to Caesar? The one question I wish desperately Jesus had answered differently. Then on April 15th, you could be godly and rebellious at the same time. (laughs) Jesus, so brilliant in his response, he says, Give me a coin. And he took the coin and he says, Whose image do you see on this? The man says, Caesar. Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. The disingenuousness of the questioner is noticed in the fact that he did not come back with a second question. He should have said, what belongs to God? And Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and give to God that which belongs to God. God's image is on you. One of the things that the ancient kings would do is they would set up images of themselves all over their kingdoms. Statues and currency, like in this situation, to show their dominion. To show their great rule. As far as their image could be found is how far they ruled. But God did it differently. Instead of posting His image all over everything like buildings and money, He said, don't make images of me. Instead, He put His image on us. And so as image bearers, as we populate and as we cover the globe, what do we do? We reflect his image all over the world. And so as one commentator has said, mankind's being made in the image of God. 
is not merely a matter of character, but one of activity and function. So you're created to reflect God's character as an image bearer, but also in your activity and in your function, how you live, how you act, what you do, you are created to reflect Him. Look at verse 28 with me. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So you see within these verses the dominion, the mandate given to God's creation created humans. So in verse 26, we see a huge part of the reason for God creating us. Let him have dominion. And then in verse 28, he says to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over the fish and the birds and everything. So imagine this scenario, right? It's on the sixth day and God has created you and he's created woman. And the first thing you hear as a created being is God's voice. The voice that spoke the sun, the moon, the trees, everything into existence, the dinosaurs, all of it. It then speaks to you. And the first thing that he says to you is to have dominion over the things that he spoke into existence, making Adam and Eve stewards of all that he created. But can you imagine two people having dominion over the millions and billions of creeping things and livestock and animals and birds and everything? And so he tells them, you need to be fruitful and you need to multiply. But they need more people to exercise this dominion mandate. So how do they continue being able to exercise dominion and greater dominion in obedience to the Lord's command? Well, they have kids. He tells Adam and Eve, and this is understood to be for all of us to listen to and obey. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, there are times when for God's purposes, he does not make it physically possible for a man and a woman to have children. And those who cannot have children are not in disobedience to God's command here. That is for his providential purposes in your life. But overall, the command is to Adam and to their posterity that as we seek to obey and subdue the earth, that we honor the Lord, we marry somebody, and we enjoy the fruit of that marriage in children. Amen? Amen. In verse 22, we see that God's desire for the birds and for the fish is to be fruitful and multiply. And that doesn't imply anything but keep making birds and fish. He says it again after the flood in Genesis 8, that all of the animals would team upon the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. And just as God expected the birds and the fish and the animals to be fruitful and to multiply, He expects us to be fruitful and to multiply. I was telling Chris earlier, somebody earlier, that even saying something like that in today's day and age feels like you're going against the tide. To say that we should be having children feels like it's going against the tide a little bit. But God wants married couples to have children. 
Despite modern attempts to belittle this idea, procreation is a primary purpose of marriage. It is not an afterthought. As though God said, oh, you'll be able to have kids too. You'll be able to have kids someday if you want. No. It's you, I have created you, I want you to exercise dominion, and part of how you're going to do this is you're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply. The Bible says in Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. The Bible speaks of children in terms of blessing. They're from God. They're a good gift from Him. It's very discouraging. And I was mentioning this a day or so ago. That in regard to, to Christians who get married and they decide not to have children for no other reason than they don't want to have children. And I think that that's a problem. I think that God would view that as a problem. That Bethany and I knew a couple. It wasn't for health reasons. It wasn't for any other reason. Aside from they just didn't want children. They got married and immediately the guy got a vasectomy. I just find that to be a problem. I don't, think that, I don't think that is in God's purview here at all. He wants us to subdue the earth. He wants us to have dominion over the earth. God is not concerned about overpopulation. He has told us to fill the earth with children. I'm very encouraged by how you all have been very obedient to this command of the Lord. And many of you have older children, but the ones that we have right now under the age of 18 among the 50-ish members of our church, we have 45 kids, and we have about three women with unborn babies. So by telling you all to have kids, I'm really preaching to the choir. So great job. So I don't want to be legalistic in the sense that, oh, you need to have seven children. No. God says to have children. So I leave that in your hands, in your conscience, but God wants this from us. But as we begin to wrap this up, Think with me further about the image of God and the dominion mandate in light of Jesus. And I want to take you to a couple of New Testament passages to do this. Okay? So why don't you turn over to Matthew chapter 28. So the image of God and the dominion mandate in light of the New Testament. So God tells us that we're to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. And we do that in many ways. All of us do that in regard to having kids. And we do it in our occupations, through technology, through hunting, through fishing, through the right kind of conservation and stewardship of the planet. Like God wants us to live in this way. If I'm honest, sometimes it really bums me out that we have so much dominion that we actually have. That you, know, you can get lost in the wilderness and eventually get found because they'll ping your cell phone or something, right? But we, we have created this world where we are exercising more and more dominion over this planet. Satellites rotating around it. We, we've kind of got this thing covered, right? But then beyond that, what about spiritually speaking? So that, that dominion mandate is for all human beings, whether they're Christians or not Christians. All humans are created to function in that way. But for Christians, I think the ante gets upped a little bit. Look at Matthew 28, beginning of verse 18, and what we commonly call the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's not only a physical component to the dominion or cultural or creation mandate, whatever you're going to call it, there is also a spiritual component to it as well. 
So if you think of it this way, it's like two train tracks that lead us onward to the new heavens and the new earth. We have on the one side the physical component of subduing the earth and having kids and living our lives, ruling and reigning over creation as God's steward. Yet on the other train track, for those who would be Jesus' disciples, we see that we are called to bring the gospel to the nations, to the, to the globe that we have been given to subdue. Like what does Jesus says? He says, all authority in heaven and on this earth has been given unto me. So now what do you do? You go with the gospel. Jesus created this thing. He created this blueberry. He bought it with his blood. It all belongs to him. And as disciples, we are then commissioned to go to the ends of the earth with our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. And we spread the gospel wherever we go. Wherever an image bearer can be found, we go with the gospel and we tell the image bearer how they can be reconciled to the God of of, of the image that they bear. That the whole earth would be full of gospel-believing people. Because this is what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. That everybody's going to believe and rejoice and glorify our God. That the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. That the whole earth that has been subdued by man on a physical level would be subdued by the Lord on a spiritual level. And you can almost hear some of the original mandate in the Great Commission, can't you? Be fruitful and multiply. Go and make disciples. Be fruitful and make disciples of Jesus. Subdue the earth with disciples. Go to all of those nations and make disciples of them. But the second passage I want you to see is found in Romans 8. So turn over there quickly with me to Romans 8. We spend a lot of time thinking about the image of God, that we are all made in His image, but we are all valuable as God's image bearers. But the Bible also talks about another image that is not to be confused with the image of God. The image of God is something that every single person is made in, but it does not save us. Just because you're made in the image of God doesn't mean that you're going to be with Him for eternity. But the Bible also talks about this image of Christ. Look at Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, now listen, to be conformed to the image of His Son. In his typical eloquent way, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, To this end, Jesus Christ came into the world and bore our image, that we through His grace might bear His image. Jesus came to this earth that in, that in some sense shattered the image of God through sin and the fall. We are image bearers, but we are, and we are broken image bearers. And Jesus came and He bore the image of God and He died on the cross and He rose again on our behalf. And by His Spirit, He is pressing the Gospel deep into us and continually conforming us to the image of Christ. The hope of the Christian is that one day when we are with the Lord, that we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ. That we're going to be completely like Him. We're going to to see Him as He is. And we're going to reflect Him directly and perfectly. And we will forever be with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the image of God and the dominion mandate have fuller expressions on the spiritual side. 
that we are to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. But as Christians, we are to advance the cause of Christ and to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, preaching the good news of Jesus to all. And we go with the hope that he will continually make us, by his Spirit, more and more in the image of Jesus, knowing that we will fully be conformed to his image on that final day. Do you look forward to this? Look forward to being perfectly conformed to the image of Christ where the rule and reign and dominion is completely over the new heavens and the new earth. Until that happens, let's work for it. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to thank you for this great chapter and I pray that by your Spirit you'll apply it well to us and just considering the, these things that you, you have created us, but for those who hear, who believe in you, you have made us.